I want you to go with me to a very, very familiar scripture today, and that is 2 Chronicles chapter number 7. We're going to read, we're going to read the, the verse that has probably been used more for revival than any other scripture in the Bible. And I want to take some time today and remind ourselves of, of our responsibility as Christians. 2 Chronicles chapter number 14. You're going to find that it begins with the word if. That word if means that the burden now is placed upon us, okay? God has made a promise. But at the beginning of that promise, God places a hinge. And the promise hinges upon our willingness to fulfill the prerequisite, the responsibility that is not God's, it is ours alone. God did not give a blank check. He said to us, there's some things that you must do. And if you're willing to do those things, then I am willing to fulfill the promise and cast the check that I have given to you. So there is, there is staring us in the face at the very beginning of this, the prerequisite of if. Notice verse 14, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Father, would you help us today and give us the things, dear God, that we have need of. Speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would um, do the work in us and with us that only you can do. And I pray that, that you would give us Dear God, the heart and the passion to walk with you and to align our life with your word. We'll be careful to give you the glory and the honor and the praise for all of it. In Jesus' name, I do pray these things. Amen. On January the 6th, 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the President of the United States of America, made what has become known as the Four Freedoms Speech. It was a powerful speech, and in that speech he he talked about the fact that, that men should have the great joy of having freedom of speech and freedom of worship and freedom from want and freedom from fear. That speech had come about as part of a, a conversation that he had had with Sir Winston Churchill. And they talked about their vision for a world and their vision for their nations and they shared uh, that goal and commonality and a desire to, to see liberty and freedom in, in both nations flourish and grow over the years. They were, of course, at that time faced with the tyranny of those that would rob from man their freedom and replace it with servitude and bondage and, and, uh, and chains. And so, in the face of all of that, Roosevelt made his speech that he was standing for the freedom of the common man to have the things that God had granted him. Freedom. I don't think, in fact, I feel certain that in my lifetime at least, that I can say that freedom ha has never been in as much danger as it is today. I don't think that there has ever been another 4th of July in my lifetime where I felt like freedom sat on the edge of a precipice so so close to the edge as it does today. Freedom of speech, Roosevelt spoke of, as being denied 
by people as the council culture seeks to silence voices that speak out contrary to their uh, agenda and their liberal ideology of a woke world. It's, it's, it's becoming very prevalent that if you say something that goes against the grain, then, then you, you are canceled. You, people lose their jobs. I want to tell you there is a, uh, there, there is a poisonous, toxic attitude in America today that if you don't agree with what I think, then I will shut you out. And it's happening, it's happening on our social media and, uh, uh, you know, um, Twitter and Facebook and all of them have taken up the cause of silencing conservative voices. You're embraced if you embrace the homosexual agenda. That's clearly condemned in the Scriptures, clearly, clearly condemned in the Scriptures. And, and, and yet if you call it a sin, you're vilified as a homophobic bigot. That's not true at all. We love people, but the reality of the matter is we cannot deny what the Scripture says. And when God calls something a sin, we would be far less than right to call it any other thing. It doesn't mean that we hate people. It means that we love God. And so we have to take the stands. The liberal faction has hijacked the narrative of this nation, and, and they seek to rewrite our history and redefine who we are as a nation. There's freedom of worship. I don't have to spend a lot of time talking about this. I think it's obvious in the last uh, year and in, in so much that, that churches have become non-essentials while bars, bars were not so much viewed and, and uh, places where you could find all the marijuana you wanted to smoke, they, they were not so much under attack. And yet in states all over America, some even to this day, if you cross our northern border and go into Canada, there are men at this moment as I speak in jail for holding services, not in a building, but in woods, just gathering and meeting outdoors in the woods. And yet the government sent helicopters over and identified them, came to their house and arrested them in front of their family. I'm just going to tell you that freedom of worship is endangered, not just in Canada where it hardly barely even exists, but in the United States of America, that somebody can sit somewhere and declare the house of the living God is not essential. That may not be a big deal to you, but I want to tell you, it would have been a huge deal to our forefathers. It would have been, it would have been gargantuan to our forefathers. And I'm going to assure you that our forefathers would not have sat by and allowed it to happen. And so the reality of the matter is we, we, we are in a place to where our freedom of worship is in danger. There's freedom from want. Now, what is freedom from want? It's the, it, it, it is based upon uh, the opportunity to earn a living in a free enterprise system that rewards hard work and, and dedication. And that's been replaced today by a nanny state that has the power not only to shut down businesses, but to send you checks of your own money that have been taxed from you so that you will be beholden to them and very grateful for the bonus checks that you get in the mail. And it, listen, it's, it's just, just study your government, study your history. It's all, it's all a part of a downward trend that, that, that started so many, many years ago. Freedom from fear. I mean, do you really think we're there as a nation? No, we're not. In fact, if, there, if there's a liberty that does not exist, it is this one. 
Because the reality of the matter is that, that our government has become a perpetrator of fear and the media have become their voice box, their microphone, their sound system. And every time you turn on, there's a, there, there's a, there's a new fear and another fear and an and embellished fear. I want to tell you where we are as a nation. And I want to remind you that, that, that I spent years of my life teaching young people and, and impressing upon them the importance of a free nation. I love, our, I, love, I love the great men, the good men that God gave us to help bring our nation to, 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 to the day of birth. And I'm thankful for those that paid the sacrifice. And yet I'm reminded today in comparison with where we were and where we are that America is in desperate need of revival. We have to have it. We must have it. Psalm 85, verse 6 and 7, Will thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? David said, Show us mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. Psalm 138, verse 7, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thy hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. I want to remind you of this, my dear friend, and that's simply this, that revival will come to us from God and God alone. It will not come at the ballot box. It is not represented in a political party. It, it, you will not have revival. You will not have revival for any reason from any man whatsoever except the mercy and the grace of a good God who loves this nation. It's not going to happen. And so do not put your trust and your faith in men. Don't do that. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of thy years, in the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. And so God now comes to us in, in the book of 2 Chronicles. And he says to us, I'm going to give you a prerequisite. And he lays it out very clearly. And he said, if you will meet the prerequisite upon which the promise hinges, then the promise is yours. The first thing he says is that there must be relationship. If my people, which are called by my name, that indicates relationship, does it not? You're my people. I want to tell you this, that God is not delivering this to people that do not know him. Look, look don't expect the lost world to act anything but like the lost world. They act like they're lost because they are lost. They act unsaved because they are unsaved. Don't expect an unsaved man to act like a saved man, a man who is void of the knowledge, does not understand truth. Don't expect him to see life as you see it. The reality of the problem is not with the world, it's with the church. The difficulty in our nation today is not found at the feet of liberals, it's found at the feet of people that know better. And yet they've become galvanized to truth and emotion and passion for the things of God. It's not the iniquity in our streets, but the indifference in our churches that's plaguing us. And if there's ever a revival of righteousness in our nation, it must come solely through the people of God. For judgment must begin at the house of God. That's what the scripture says. And this nation of ours was founded upon the truth of the word of God and upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to I want to requote for you again Patrick Henry. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists but by Christians, not on religions but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faith have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. 
It was Henry who was called the firebrand of the revolution. It was Henry that stood before the men and, 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 and made the incredible speech of, of the fact that, that our brethren already are already in the field. And, and, and as for me, give me liberty or give me death. He gave them a choice and drew it out for them. What is it that gentlemen would wish? He's talking about life and liberty and chains and slavery and the choice that we much must make. That already the, the, the clash of resounding arms is echoing in our ears. We cannot wait any longer. And the firebrand of the revolution moved a generation of men to take a stand and to give their lives for liberty. I want to just tell you, I want to remind you, listen carefully, that, that revival is not the resurgence of a political party or the conservative principles that we all hold dear. That's not what revival is. That may be a byproduct of revival, but revival is a, is a thorough getting right with God. You and me, the people of God, the people who have been plagued with indifference, the people that are nonchalant about righteousness and living for God, the people that have allowed themselves to become allured by the world and contaminated by the things of the world. You can't wear a mask and keep yourself from being contaminated with, with, with principles that are ungodly and, and, and not in line with the Holy Scripture. So we've got to allow God to impress upon us through His Word the way that God expects us to live. Second of all, not only must there be relationship, but there must be humility. There must be humility. Now, if there is a sin that contaminates the soul of man more than any other sin, it has to be the sin of pride. It's pride that blinds us to our, our own sinfulness. It's pride that makes us feel like we're good enough. It's pride that tells us we need no relationship with Christ. We can do it on our own. It's pride that tells us we know what's best for us. And no wonder the Bible speaks so, in such, with such words of condemnation against pride. It's the poison that we're all so susceptible to. Proverbs 16, verse 18, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23, A man's pride shall bring him low. You may think you're high. You may think you're on the pedestal. But the Bible said when pride enters our life, it brings us low. But honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 and 17. These six things doth the Lord hate. And the first thing, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And the first one is a proud look. I like to say that it's pride that bats lead off in the list of abominations that God gives. The first one to the plate, the first one that God calls up is a proud look. I want to remind you that Paul wrote his son in the ministry, Timothy, and he said to him, this know that in the last days perilous times shall come. It doesn't have anything to do with blood moons and falling stars and, you know, all the eclipses and things that we are so susceptible to watching. And I'm not saying that there won't be signs in the heavens, but the predominant sign that is brought out by both Jesus and Paul is that the changes that take place that are pointing to the last days and the latter times is the changes that take place in people. And so Jesus, uh, uh, Paul wrote and he said this, this know that in the last days perilous times shall, shall come. What's the first thing? For men shall be lovers of their own selves. We're narcissistic. We love us. 
It is the man in the mirror that we are so fond of and so grateful for. Okay? Now, if your face was doing to you what my face is doing to me, you might not feel that way. I stood the other day at camp and I thought, wow. Wow. Anyhow, I'll leave it at that. Just wow. Okay, is that me? Is that you? Is this what's happening to you, Dean? And uh, so I prayed for myself. But anyhow, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it, uh, men shall be lovers of their own selves. You know, when I tell a joke and you stare at me like that, it bothers me because I think you're thinking, yes, we've been thinking that for months now, Pastor. Your face is heading in the wrong direction. So thank you for your painful criticism. No, men shall be lovers of their own selves. We live in a day of narcissism. And then it says later, boasters. We brag about ourselves and what we can do and what we can accomplish. And we live in a day of absolute humanism. And we're fed little lines like you can do it. You can get it done. We're taught, we're taught to look within ourselves. Let me help you with this. If you look within yourself long enough, you'll become depressed. Because I know that in me, Paul said, that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So if you look deep enough and long enough, you're going to find a lot of garbage down inside of you because you're a sinner. Yes, saved by the grace of God, but there's a lot of things on the inside. In fact, I remind you that the Bible said that your heart, like my heart, is desperately wicked. So I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time looking around inside trying to find trying to find something with which to elevate ourselves. We're sinners, and whatever good is in our life is given to us by the grace of a good God who loves us and gave himself for us. Everyone that is a proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Wow, that's pretty powerful. The strongest word in the Bible used for sin is abomination. And everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, though hand join in hand. In other words, you can get a group up if you want to, you can form yourself a proud gang. And though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. And so the first step toward revival in our hearts, now look at me, listen to me. You can't claim, you can pray for revival for America, but the only thing you can claim revival for is yourself. Gypsy Smith, the old preacher that, that used to preach Jesus so powerfully, said that his key to revival, somebody said, Gypsy, what's your key to revival? He said, I draw a circle. And I step in the middle of that circle, circle, and I pray, dear God, send revival within this circle. What he was saying is simply this. I can't be responsible for you or you or you, but revival in my own heart and life is what I'm responsible for. And so pride tells us we don't need that. Look at me. Pride tells us I'm good enough. Pride tells us others are just jealous. Others are just judgmental. And the reality of the matter is we ought to allow the Bible to throw the spotlight on us. So the first step to revival is realizing and recognizing that we need to get off the throne and allow Christ to be on the throne of all that we have and all that we are. That takes humility and that takes honesty and that means that my way isn't so great after all. Now I've gone my way. I've made my choice before and it never turns out right. James 4, 6, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Again, in James, same chapter and verse number 10, he says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time.
And so the first thing we must establish relationship. And by the way, that's not by, look, relationship does not come by what you've done. It comes by what he did for you. Relationship doesn't come by trying. Relationship comes by trusting. Relationship isn't about you and about me. It's about him and what he did for me on Calvary. Not by works of righteousness, which I have done, but according to his mercy hath he saved us. And so I have to have relationship. Then I have to have humility. If I'm going to have revival in my life, I have to be willing to admit that I am a sinner. I've, I, have, uh, I have transgressed what God would have for me in life, and I've got to be humble enough to realize my need of God's hand in my life. Third of all, there must be prayer. Now, prayer is not a difficult thing. Prayer is simply asking and receiving. Prayer is the willingness to communicate with a God who wrote an entire book for us that, by the way, you can read it cover to cover and, and, and never wear it out. Mueller said, I've read it over a hundred times and I find it richer and purer every time. So God gave us what he wants us to know of his mind. This is the mind of God. God handed us his mind. And yet we're so reticent to talk with God and to pray and and to spend our time communicating with Him. Sometimes, sometimes our desire uh, is, is just simply for there to be a monologue. God speaks to us, and we get our reading of our chapter done, and yet there's, there's, there's no real dialogue. Sometimes it's just the opposite. We want to speak to God and tell God our problems, but we're not willing to get in the Word of God. The truth of the matter is it's a two-way street. There must be dialogue where God speaks to me through His Word, and I speak to God through my privilege of prayer that, that he gives me. Now, I want to say this. You're not willing to truly pray until you first humble yourself because it's through the humility. That's why God listed that verse. It's through the humility that we honestly know how to confess who we are and confront our weaknesses and our problems without the, without the humbling of ourselves. then our prayers become nothing but, but, but public shows. We pray to the God of Rehoboam, uh, Jeroboam, and all the Boam boys. We, we, we pray elaborate words. Always be suspectful of a man whose voice changes when he prays. Well, he's just being reverent. No, he's being weird. Okay. Some guy that's got a high voice, and you call on him to pray, and suddenly his voice lowers. I have a father. No, no, just, just talk to God. God is your father. I never walked into my father and said, my heavenly pop, you know. I just want to say, hey, pop, we talk. Now, I'm not talking about irreverence. I'm not talking about irreverence. It's funny. We were at camp the other day, and one of the guys was leading, and he made the comment in a song. He said, Why, who do we turn to? Who do we turn to when we need something in our life? And there was a guy in the back that obviously wasn't used to our type of lingo. And he said, the man upstairs. And he just totally ignored that. I thought, boy, you blew that one, you know. The man upstairs. No, no, no. We go to our Father. When Jesus taught them to pray, our Father which art in heaven, that was so transformational in their life. Our Father. He taught them that their God wanted family relationships with them. He's no longer God the Creator or Elohim. He's no longer God our peace. He is, he is Daddy. He is Abba Father. And we have the privilege and the joy 
of praying to him. I think it's so important. I, 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 wonder, I wonder if we would be honest about our prayer life. I wonder if, if we were, would we, would we announce it non-existent or would we announce it anemic? I wonder, I wonder if we're doing life our way under our power or are we tapping into the great resource of prayer that God has given us? If we do it our way, I wonder how that's working out for us. I wonder how life our way is going. How do you sleep at night? What do you do with the guilt that is your constant companion as you stumble your way through life making self-decisions, empowered and motivated by your own logic and your own reason and figuring out, well, this is, you know, if God didn't want this to happen, then this probably wouldn't have presented it. Isn't it funny how we attribute to God things that, that, that do you not realize that, that, that Satan can bring things your way? We must be careful, pray. Prayer is the outlet that we tap into God's power, not just for power, but for peace. We waste so much of our life doing things our way. Not only that, but there must be pursuit. We must pray, and then we must seek His face. David said in Psalm 36, uh, uh, 63, verse 8, I love this. I want you to listen to this verse. Psalm 63, verse 8, listen to this scripture. My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. You know what he's talking about? It's like, a, it's like a pack of hounds hunting. They're following hard after the prey. That's the language that's given here. And he says, my soul is in pursuit of you. My soul followeth hard after thee. And I think that we have to be honest again in how much time we devote to our fellowship with God. And whether we're not just Sunday go to church Christians that pop in on Sunday morning and, and that's all there is to it. It's so easy to get caught up in ritual. and so easy to get caught up in tradition. I remind you that the church in Revelation, Jesus stood on the outside and knocked. They had no idea, according to the scriptures, that he was not even amongst them. They were so busy with their traditions and running their programs. They had everything done as they had always done it. We never did it that way. We've always done it this way. And they, so, they were so busy always doing it that way that Christ was on the outside knocking, saying, I'd like you to let me inside. It's very easy. It's very easy for us to shut the door sometimes. And revival means that Jesus becomes real in our life. That we begin living not, not for a program, we begin living for a person. We begin living for Christ. I think it's so important that we learn to live for someone. You remember the first time you saw each other? You're thinking, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I can't forget that. I remember the first time I saw my wife, and, and from that time on, I wanted to see her again. So I would... I would look for her on campus and I would follow her. Nothing in the Bible speaks against stalking. And so I became a stalker at Bible college and followed her and made sure that I was there. And then we had it all set up where I could meet her. She was always in my thoughts. When she really even didn't know who I was, what she did not know was that I was in pursuit of her. And before I ever knew her name, this is true, I came home for Easter from Bible college, and I told my mother, uh, I came home for Christmas, I'm sorry, from Bible college, and I told my mother, 
I said, at Easter, I'm going to bring the girl home that I'm going to marry. My dad said to me, what's her name? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if she knew scripture. I just knew she looked good and I wanted to kiss her. You know what I'm saying? Look, don't look at me at a, like a calf at a new gate. Don't, you didn't go up to each other and say, what's your favorite scripture? What's your life verse? No, you didn't. You said, well, if she don't have a life verse, I'll teach her one. Amen? So anyhow, he that findeth, she, he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. But anyhow, I just want to tell you that our pursuit of the Lord takes passion. You, you, do, you feel, do you feel any anticipation about coming to church? about being a part? Do, do you think that maybe in the morning when you get up and you open your Bible that there might be something there as you look in the Scripture that God will give you? Are you excited about your walk with God and your relationship with God? When the whole world around us seems to have lost common sense, isn't it great to have a God that walks with us and a Bible that we can open that, that brings our feet back on the ground and gives us the assurance that our God is still in control? It's a wonderful thing. Last of all, there must be repentance. They must turn from their wicked way. That's what the word turn means. It means literally to, to, to go in the opposite direction. It's the last prerequisite uh, in, our, in our desire for revival. Not only must, must we pursue the Lord, but wait a minute. If the Lord is here and the world is there, I can't pursue the Lord if I'm going in the opposite direction. So for me to pursue the Lord, the Bible said, I can't do that going my way, going the world's way, going contrary to the Scripture. If I'm going to do that, I have to turn from my wicked way. Until I do that, then my pursuit of the Lord is not at all possible. The three hardest words in the English language are I have sinned. We, we call it unfortunate mistakes. I've made some, Pastor, I've made some, um, some choices that weren't quite right. Remember Fonzie? Come on, people. The Fonz. Fonzarella, okay? When Fonzie made a mistake, they would tell him, boy, I just aged myself, didn't I? Anyhow, there are reruns on. Get your kids up to date. But anyhow, so I would, they would say something to Fonzie. He would make a mistake, and Fonzie would say, I was, and he couldn't say it. And then he would say, I was, and he struggled, and everybody's laughing. Then finally he would say, I wasn't right. Okay. Anything but. I was wrong. Isn't it amazing how people that, that get out of line, it's so hard to say, I have sinned. It's, it's no, I made, a, I made an ill choice. I made a wrong decision. No, 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 no. That's not what that's called. That's called sin. And until we turn from our wicked ways, then, then we're not going to have revival in our life. That's, that's, the, that's the step that God gives us there. There's a misappropriated grace in our world today that's promoted so, so wide and so far across what we would call Christianity, okay? We misappropriate it. We think that grace somehow softens us to sin. 
That's not what the Scripture teaches. Somehow, somehow grace um, makes us lenient toward unrighteousness, but that's the exact opposite. Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So we don't, we don't, become, we don't become more lenient towards sin. In fact, the Bible says that grace helps us recognize worldly lust and ungodliness in the world in which we live. And so it's important that we not call immorality entertainment. It's important that, that, that we allow the Bible to be our absolute truth and to define our lines of, of, of morality and decency, that the things that we believe come from the Word of God and, and, and thus saith the Lord. And he says if we do that, if we're willing to make that turn, if we're willing to humble ourselves, if we're willing to confess our our sins and our wickedness, we're willing to pursue Him, if we really want a relationship, if we really want His blessing, then God said, then I will hear. And I will heal your land. And if there's anything that is needed in America, it's healing. Lincoln said this, and I close, if destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. For as a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. And if we're not careful, we're watching the very death throes of our nation, and we're blaming everyone else for it, but the reality of the matter is we're killing ourselves. And so as a Christian, you can sleep your way to heaven. Thank God you're saved. I'm grateful. We're going to stand before Him and give an account. So we can just do life our way and live by our rules and our guidelines, or we can bow ourselves down to the king of it all and allow his word to dictate the way we live our life. And God said that's revival. When we tune ourselves, look, when we tune ourselves with this book and our life lines up with this book to the best of our ability, that's revival. And God's looking for a revived people that he might bless. Let's bow our heads. I know that you love our nation just as I do. We need to pray for America. We need to pray that God would revive America. But I want to remind you that revival starts at your doorstep the doorstep of your heart. Let me ask you a question. Are you excusing things in your life that are contrary to the Scripture, contrary to the Word, contrary to the will of God? Are you letting things go simply because you've deemed them to be okay? Or is thus saith the Lord still the guiding principle of how you live your life living like a Christian isn't easy but it's necessary if we're going to win a lost world and have the blessings of God on our life
grateful for our nation. I love it so much that I want my grandchildren. I want my grandchildren to grow up in the nation that I have so loved. Our Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for America. Thank you for the joy of celebrating the independence that came by your great blessings upon our forefathers. I pray we would not squander it. I pray we would not take it for granted. I pray that we would realize that you are the author of it all. And help us, dear God, I pray, to live with our lives in line with your word. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.